In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. You have indeed found No Proscenium, the voice of everything immersive, and this is our episode for Friday, January 28th, 2022. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. This week on the show, three big segments coming out of two different film festivals. Our first segment is going to be with Erfan Sadati, the co-creator of Child of Empire, an incredible virtual reality piece exploring the story of the partition of India, which is coming up on its anniversary, uh, a rather large anniversary this year. That is currently in the Sundance New Frontier section, which uh, wraps up today. Our second segment is going to be with Doug Jacobson, Athena Demos, and Andrew Barrett of Big Rock Creative talking about the BRC, that is Black Rock City, VR Film Festival that's taking place next weekend in BRC VR, uh, accessible not only via Altspace, but also via Zoom for folks. We'll get all into that in the second segment. And then we're going to return to Sundance and the New Frontier to talk with Steve Jamison, one of the co-creators of On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World, an absolutely stunning piece uh, you might also know the team behind that uh, as the creators of Notes on Blindness, which is one of the seminal pieces of virtual reality documentary. Before we get to your headlines, just a little headline of our own. The No Proscenium Audience Awards for 2022 are now eligible for voting. Uh, that's not the way you say it, but I'm going to say it that way anyway. Anyway, the ballots are live. You can find the list of nominees at No Proscenium. We'll also link it here in the show notes. 14 categories, 51 unique nominees. Uh, check it all out at No Pro. And uh, again, link in the show notes. And now, now actually, without further ado, here's Catherine Yu with our headlines. This is Catherine Yu, Executive Editor of No Proscenium. Here's what's in your immersive headlines for January 28th. First off in Metaverse news, Second Life creator Philip Rosedale has returned to the fray. High Fidelity has cut a deal with Rosedale's former company, Linden Lab, which will bring the founder back as a strategic advisor alongside acquiring some of High Fidelity's assets. Says Rosedale of the deal, quote, big tech giving away VR headsets and building a metaverse on their ad-driven behavior modification platforms isn't going to create a magical single digital utopia for everyone, end quote. Meanwhile, Microsoft, in its announcement to purchase Activision Blizzard, known for making games like Call of Duty, Candy Crush, and World of Warcraft, has framed the acquisition as a step toward establishing its own foothold in the metaverse. On a recent earnings call, company CEO Satya Nadella said this of the deal, quote, We are investing to make it easier for people to play great games wherever, whenever, and however they want, and also shape what comes next for gaming as platforms like the metaverse develop, end quote. 
Speaking of games, developer Ramen VR has launched its MMO Zenith The Last City this past week. The game is being described as the first full-scale, massively multiplayer online game designed specifically for virtual reality, which includes its combat, locomotion, and crafting mechanics. Zenith The Last City is available now for Quest, Steam, and PSVR. In IRL events news, the live entertainment platform Fever has raised $227 million in a round led by Goldman Sachs. The company, known for its Bridgerton Ball collaboration with Netflix or its Immersive Van Gogh exhibitions, no, not that Immersive Van Gogh or that other one, it's the other other one, has been valued at an eye-popping $1 billion. Fever is active in about 60 cities around the world, but has also been the subject of hundreds of customer confusion complaints to the Better Business Bureau. Meow Wolf has a new CEO, Jose Tolosa, who comes to the immersive art company from Viacom CBS, replacing the previous three-co-CEO structure, which was put in place after founder Vince Cadlebeck stepped down in 2019. While Meow Wolf does not disclose its exact revenue figures, it's estimated to have earned at least $38 million in ticket sales last year, according to the Santa Fe New Mexican. And in 2019, the company had raised $158 million in part to build out its Denver and Las Vegas locations, but Beowulf also had a round of layoffs and furloughs affecting about 250 people in April 2020 before opening its Vegas and Denver exhibitions in 2021. So, what's next for the company in 2022? Well, Meowulf has been keeping news of future projects close to the vest as there are currently no new major projects officially in the works. Fans will note that the previously announced Phoenix and DC plans have been cancelled. These have been your immersive headlines. Joining us now is the co-creator of Child of Empire, that would be Erfan Sadati, who, along with Sparch Ajuha, uh, created the piece. Erfan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the piece is in Sundance right now, and I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you about it. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for t- taking the time. Oh, yeah. No, without a doubt. Uh, for those who've yet to experience the piece, what's the logline here? Actually, like I, I like the way you put it. I, I'd rather you say it, honestly, because like you have the logline in front of you. Um, I don't actually have the logline in front of me, so like I'm not actually the actual logline. But just like, what's what's the story here? What what is what is the piece so telling me? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're telling we're examining the story of partition through two um to two characters, a Hindu and a Muslim character who did the did the travel from Pakistan to India and India to Pakistan. Obviously at the time there were the two countries didn't really exist uh, or you know, yeah. it had just become it come into existence. Um, we examine the immediate after effects of England leaving uh, India or like British India and the creation of these two countries and the horrors that surrounded it. We tried to like not make it all about the horrors. So we, there is actually dotted, um, some some happy memories that they had as well um the way we tried to approach this was through two old, like the the current version of them like them in their old age sitting down and having having a discussion over over tea and a, and a board game um and sort of reminiscing i mean maybe reminiscing is the wrong word but yeah looking back in their early life the scale of of the, the historical moment is is so huge and 
to the level, because we're talking about one of the largest forced migrations in human history. We're talking about the populations of two, uh, uh, the populations of one country being split into two and then having to swap where they were, give up their lives uh, and, and move somewhere that, you know, they had ties, they maybe had ties to. How how do you land on this approach of grounding it in in the perspective of of two people looking back on their lives, uh, you know, to to when they were boys? What what led to telling the story that way? Well, actually, like it's uh, the, the the production of this experience uh, has has been like three years in the making. Um, originally, we were planning to um, do a more traditional doc in terms of well, three sixty video. Uh, so recorded like live action and do more like uh, interviews and then take them back to where they were from. And we we're going to have more than two characters. Originally, originally, we were thinking three survivors. But the pandemic has sort of uh, forced us down this animated route, uh, which actually, looking back, is probably the best uh, the best thing that could have happened for the experience. Not the world, but for the experience. That <laughs> was the best, uh, the best route possible. And then... You know, we were figuring out how to tell the story. And I've been making VR experiences for a while now, um, you know, like 10 years, coming up 10 years, well, 360 video and then VR experiences. Um, and like, you know, there's always a constant theme where there's like a voiceover and then you see stuff happening in front of you, but then there's a voiceover of the character. And there's something in there that, you know, you get lost in the experience because, you know, you lose what they're saying. And then, cause you're trying to concentrate on what's happening. Um, so we thought, what, how can we make this conversation more interesting instead of like having the character directly speaking to you? Um, and, you know, out of that came this idea to have the two people uh, talking because, mm. you know, as, as part of it, there is two different um, separate. I mean, like, yeah, there is two populations that we wanted to cover. So it didn't really make sense to make that. If, if we had taken a one character route, we had to make a decision on is it going to be a Hindu character or a Muslim character? And that wouldn't have been fair to the story. And, and there is something to this this notion of two people talking and almost like we're overhearing a discussion and it's playing out around us, which feels, you know, we cover a lot of immersive theater. There's something very theatrical and dramatic about that, that conceit. Yeah. I mean, like we're nosy people, right? Like, like <laughs> The conversation is always more interesting when it's other people having almost, right? And especially because that. you as the viewer can't re- reply or like can't be part of the conversation. Mm. We felt that's probably the best way to include you. Yeah, I love that. Like, yeah, we're we're overhearing. We're we're snooping. Oh exactly. That's 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 cool. How how important you've touched on this a little bit, but kind of boiling it into how important was it that you you put the audience inside the scene so you were just talking about you know there's a the traditional way it was like a 360 video you're watching the action someone's voiceovering it they're contextualizing it so you kind of poke around now you're in the game engine you're you're letting people kind of do a little bit more poking around um but how 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 much does that embodied experience for the participant for the viewer bring to the story in your eyes well i think um a, a big influence uh, or like one of the one of, one of my favorite uh, vr experiences in the last few years was um common grounds by darren emerson um 
And in that, it was like a combo of 360 video and VR. And he actually allowed like specific interactive moments for you to actually, you know, do some things to ground you more into the experience. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, so we were really keen to not make it super passive so people don't disengage with the experience. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there's something for everyone. Like, you know, like even if you're not interested in the subject matter, which we hope by, you know, halfway through the film you are, um, you can engage with the environment and actually, you know, experience it in a, from a different uh, perspective. And also, like, it was the main reason why we chose VR as a medium for this story as opposed to traditional um, traditional media was we wanted people to walk into these uh, characters' shoes. And I think VR as a medium does that the best. It's not necessarily the most artistic medium yet anyway, um, but it really does let you live someone else's life or it's as close as it can be. Um, and being able to transport them back in time as well to um, to experience um, their, their journeys, you know, like very close to the stories. And like, we, you know, we spent quite a lot of time to make sure that we made this uh, the um, the spaces look as accurate as possible, and and that's uh, like a, that's a, that's a nod to my um, art director Steven Stevenson, who did an amazing job with a very limited uh, resources. Um, but yeah, something I thought that was really interesting and kind of added to like the gut punch effect of the whole piece was the opening pre-title sequence, and you have a pre-title sequence, which I guess for me that always says something like oh this is going to be a thing when, when it's like, we're going to jump you into the story. And there's that kind of almost, almost like puppet theater, like cutout frame that goes on. Like you, you find yourself in a little space, you're looking through a proscenium, you're looking through a window out onto a kind of like the, the flash version of the history setting the stage before we open up into the hole. Um, how did you guys come up with this idea and and decide to start with such a contained kind of uh, um, moment to to frame everything and, and play with the idea of frames? Uh, and uh, and at what point did you know that that's when you were going to land the title? Um, well, actually, the idea of like sort of doing a title sequence was one of the first. Um, like, we wanted. To, I was very keen to have like a you know, a boom, to start with a boom um, yeah. like quite early on. But that sort of the history lesson was actually something that sort of like was implemented towards the end of the uh, production cycle because, you know, we didn't want to make this an experience that just people with a subcontinent connection would understand. So we had to give like, you know, for better of a, a you know, lack of better words, a history lesson. And yeah. we had to like condense 300 years worth of history into, you know, two minutes um, and that's why we went with the with the stage because you know in VR like when you have like the the agency to look around and whatnot is um, it can get distracting and this was the one moment that I actually could do some directing and be like you know sit here and watch this because this is this is something you have to pay attention on um, and another motivating factor for like the aesthetic was we were really keen to inc- incorporate some. Um, south asian art and influence uh, from you know from like the mogul miniature uh, era and uh, you know and then just sort of show that transition from like you know early 1800s to you know to like right up to the 1940s um so yeah, there was like a few this the defining factors but the main reason if i had to pick one was we wanted people to concentrate about what's in front of them 
it's such an effective moment in, in, in so many ways. Um, I, I did find myself when the title landed, I was like, Oh, that was, that was just the title sequence. <laughs> like there's something about that pop. We were just like, Oh, I guess we're in for, it. I think I may have said out loud, I guess we're in for it now. Uh, when it happened. So bravo on that front. Um, coming back to the, the two characters here. Um, I'm struck by the notion that we're losing the generation that lived through just these massive changes in the 20th century, whether it's the Holocaust in World War II, the partition, the cultural revolution in China, the civil rights movement in America. I get this feeling that this piece is at least partially animated by a sense of urgency in capturing the story while those who lived it are still with us. Is that some of the motivation here? What else drives you to examine this chapter right now? So, yeah, I mean, for sure, like, you know, these stories, unfortunately, aren't going to be available firsthand for much longer. Um, that coupled with the 75th year anniversary coming up in August this year made it a very good opportunity to use this, um, to use the partition to like, uh, to basically teach people about this event, the start of the anniversary to teach people about this event uh, in history, which is not very well publicized in our school yeah. books anywhere, you know, uh, if I'm being honest. So I'm myself, I'm Iranian British. Um, so I was actually not that exposed to the story up until the moment I actually started working on the project. Um, and we wanted to take users on that, uh, well, viewers on that journey as well. Um, Another reason, I mean, the, the, the key factor that started kickstarted, the catalyst that kickstarted all this project was Sparsh uh, wanted to take his granddad back to his uh, ancestral home um, that where, where he lived in what is now Pakistan. Uh, so he had started a, um, a sort of like a foundation that would, that would do this service for people from all over uh, India and Pakistan. And, you know, because he was doing it in VR, somehow we crossed paths. And then, you know, I was like, dude, we got to make a documentary about this with the best, the, the best stories, because people need to know about this, because it doesn't only apply to as you know, it doesn't apply to only the subcontinent and partition, it applies to like so many different peoples and so many different conflicts as you as you as you touched upon. Yeah. I mean, I, the partition is something that, you know, I had, I, I knew the name. And I knew that India and Pakistan didn't exist, you know, in in the form they do now until somewhere around World War II. But you know, you until you're confronted with the facts on the ground, literally on the ground, you you don't you can just run over that in like a textbook. It's like okay, they, they and then they created the countries out of thin air. So just like a bunch of the stuff that happened after World War II, the idea that millions of people had to uproot themselves, that it wasn't as simple as like, we drew a line in the sand um, and that we just we just run around with all this history embedded in us and just ignorant of it and then wondering why there's so much pain and hurt in the world. And I, I'm by the end of this, I was just really kind of struck by, you know, we, we, we're in this moment where we're, we have the opportunity to address, I almost said confront, but confront has such spiky terms, but we have this ability to address the history that made us and sort of the challenge in front of us as a people globally is, is whether we're going to really look at what, what's happened 
or we're going to try to pretend it didn't and then wonder why the world is so broken. And I think you guys really brought that vibe. Obviously, that's, if that's what I was thinking after I saw it, you know, you, you brought. Yeah, I think this. it's um, like, I guess, in like another catalyst that like sort of kickstarted. I mean, you only start seeing these stories like in, in the last few years. I think mm. there's there's been a few movements that has allowed for these stories to come out, you know, and, you know, we don't we don't want to pretend like we actually we were so super keen to not make it the political piece because that's not that's not where we're at and we don't mm. even want to judge what's happened right like although there's a lot to judge <laughs> we, it's not for us. <laughs> yeah there is um it's just more acknowledging what's happened from a south asian perspective and not like a south asian perspective the brits came and ruined our lives but rather like look like you the the, the lives of the people because and like another reason, you know, you, you, earlier you asked why we decided to go with two characters and why we decided to have them in a conversation is because almost every interview we had, and so there's about almost 40 of them, they all started with the main character, the main, the person we were interviewing started of starting saying, oh yeah, well, it was the other side's fault. They, you know, they're to be blamed and, you know, it should have never happened like this. But then by the end of it, we would see that human impact on onto their life, you know, where like they would get past and, you know, what what would be left was just a victim of, of, mm. of all this. And I've, I I hope that that comes across in the experience because they, they start by like disagreeing with each other, mocking each other. But by the end of it, there's almost this like brotherhoodly nod uh, to one another. Um, so, yeah, I really the, hope that. that the shared, you know, yeah. there's the shared experience, you know doesn't matter where they started they were both they were both forced to having the same experience just they were moving in opposite directions but it was the same thing yeah exactly and that's, and that's something that we like every almost every single um uh survivor that we interviewed reflected on you know like because obviously maybe there was a few leading questions from us as well um <laughs> but you know they always always say you know the the, the victims were the ones who suffered you know forget the political yeah. reasoning behind it. Well, Airfan is a absolutely stunning piece. Uh, it's wrapping up at Sundance run. Uh, what's, what's next for, for child of empire is staying on the festival circuit for a while or, or moving towards a release. It's something that can be found on Oculus right now. Um, right now, I think it's only available on the app lab, um, but uh, mm -hmm. we're planning to release it after um, or during the, um, during August, when it's the partition anniversary uh, month. Um, until then, we're hoping, you know, to show it to like-minded people, as well as um, our distribution is going to be through like, um, basically locations as well, like, uh, like um, what's it called, uh, museums. And also we wanna, mm. we really want like older, older young adults, <laughs> not older kids, uh, older yeah. uh, young adults to really experience this, especially people with South, South Asian heritage, um, in places like UK, US, um, uh, as well as obviously the subcontinent, but people who come from that heritage but are disconnected from their own story. Um, but of course, you know, I want as many people to watch it as possible. Like, not to say that <laughs> we want to limit it to those people. Um, well, again, yeah, absolutely. If, if, I, if I can get like one last word in there, uh, is that the 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 sort of like. The, the approach we took, which is like a docu drama, is heavily like the decision came heavily because from uh, 
from one of my uh, filmmaking heroes, Abbas Kiarostami, um, who actually I, I studied for and uh, with for, for a bit, and I have his book right now actually on my desk, looking at his face. Um, that like I feel like you know documentaries can sometimes be dry, as long as you insert some sort of narrative into it, they just become a little bit more interesting. I feel. Um, so I always like to pay my respects when I can. <laughs> well, I, I, I absolutely love the approach and it, I, I agree with you about, you know, they can, they can feel a bit dry. Like the last thing in the world you need is to just confront people with a wall of statistics. I, some people are wired that way, but they are, they are a small minority who usually just go into legislation, which is unfortunate. Um, <laughs> the rest of us need, <laughs> the rest of us need to know there's a person behind it all. So, and you've, you've done a really great job of doing just that. Uh, I know, I know you've got a panel you got to run off to, so I, I, I'd love to keep you around for longer, but uh, just again, a stunning piece of work. And if, uh, if anyone's still in the Sundance mix right now, uh, grab it while you have a chance. Thank you so much for having me, now. Joining us now are Athena Demos and Doug Jacobson, co-founders of Big Rock Creative. You may know them from BRCVR, who have been the virtual burn in alt space for the past couple of years. They won a PGA Innovation Award for the 2020 edition. And coming up very soon, uh, first weekend in February, is the BRCVR Film Fest. And they've got some other stuff coming up in uh, in the future. We're going to talk to them about all that starting in the Film Fest. But Athena and Doug, good to have you back on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Tell us about the film fest that you have coming up. It's a it's a film fest in BRCVR, so on Alt Space. How does that work? What what? How do these things work? <laughs> For those who don't know, <laughs> right, right. Um, so we're going to screen the film in a customized world that has elements of that film in the world. For example, uh, we're going to screen Art on Fire. And then it's a it zooms in on three art pieces from Burning Man, and those actual three art pieces are going to be in the world. So once you're done watching the movie, you're in the set of the movie in a way, and you can watch. And uh, the people who created those art pieces will be there, and you'll be able to walk the art pieces with the creators and talk and ask questions. For those that don't aren't able to get into alt space, we're also going to have a, a Zoom available for uh, everyone else to join in. That yeah. is that is very very rad. Um, like that's exceptionally rad. Um, Athena, how does, how does this all kind of thing come together and, and why a film festival format? Well, uh, first I want to say that all three films are documentaries about Burning Man and the three films are three very different aspects of Burning Man. Um, and the way it came together, it was, uh, right after we did a BRCVR 2021 and we were in one of our worlds. It was actually the Burning Man Embassy in BRCVR. And Doug decided to put on one of his movies, Journey to the Flames, in the Bijou, which is like our little playa movie theater. And the place packed up. And people from all over the place came to it. And we realized, oh, my gosh, people want this. And one of the things they commented on was how cool was it that we're like at Digital Burning Man watching documentaries about physical Burning Man. And that sparked the idea 
And we started building towards that idea. And now here we are the first weekend in February, we're launching the first edition of the BRCVR Film Festival, and there will be others throughout the year. For both of you, do you know of, there have been a few film festivals that have popped up in alt space. There's people who do screenings in VR. I, and this is just, you know, probably perspective bias, I can't think of anyone who's like built worlds for the screening they were doing so that you could be like watching the thing inside the thing as if it were say when like secret cinema does back to the future right has there any precedence that you know of for this not that i know of and there's been some really excellent film festivals usually they they go for the typical movie theater um screening experience or try to recreate the movie theater that that film festival was in in real life. Um, but, um, you know, we were like, wait a minute, <laughs> it's VR. We can, why not be immersed? You know, like if you're going to, you know, so we, we really, uh, this is a really grand experiment. We hope, uh, we hope pays off. We're really excited about it. And I'm, t- I'm telling you right now the the worlds we made for this film festival will are, are great. We did uh, one for our Larry Harvey documentary that we're screening that is just mind blowing. And I, and you'll have to come and see. Oh, don't give away too much. Oh, it's so exciting. Don't give away too much. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, but you're going to have to come see. Right. No, no spoilers, but I, I got to say like, just to be like perfectly flat, honest, like when it came in, it's like, oh, okay. I love those guys and, and gals. This is good. Cool. We'll do something at the film festival. And like it just it passed me by that like you had built out these worlds. And so now I've gone from like, oh, okay, it's a film festival in all space to being like, oh my God, they built the sets. Like I am now very, very, very excited about this. Uh, because that that little it's that little extra something that makes because like right now everyone's like, you know, metaverse this and immersive that. And when people so many people are throwing these words around and they just mean like really, really engaging or let's make a bunch of money in an easier way. But actually taking advantage of the medium to do stuff you can't do in reality, like that's the point. And you're doing yeah. that. There's also uh, one other thing we're doing that's interesting is that we're having the people on the Zoom be able to live interact with the people in the world to ask questions back and forth. So we're going to have the Zoom screen be in the world. And so that someone on Zoom could be like, hey, you know, and ask a question. So that's a whole nother level of experimentation we're doing. And is, is someone acting as the moderator for that? Athena? Yes, I am acting as the <laughs> moderator. <laughs> to answer you your surprised? question, not what I wanted to say, but surprise, surprise. Actually, the first two screenings, I'll be moderating the Q&A. And then the third screening, Justin Gunn will be moderating it. And he was actually also the film producer for TV Free Burning Man, which is our third um, third film. And the the we say that there's three films. There's actually three very distinct worlds, three very distinct time periods. So we have one that starts at 10 a.m. Pacific time, and then we do the Q&A, and then we'll have a DJ mixer, and then we take a little bit of a break, and then we have the next one in its own world that starts at 2, and then we have the film, the Q&A, and a live DJ, and then we have the last one, which starts at 7, film, Q&A, DJ. Uh, and, and so they're they're like, it's a full day film festival and you can't go to one and not go to all of them because they're so distinct. And if you can't join uh, virtually, 
uh, virtual reality wise. You, you can join PC, Mac, or in a VR headset, but if you don't want to do any of those, you can still join on a Zoom call, which means you can join from your phone, from a tablet, from a computer. So we wanted to make it as radically inclusive as possible, and we wanted people to participate however they are most comfortable. This approach of, of kind of opening all the possible portals, that's got to mean like a lot of kind of human effort to this organizing as well. I mean, so much of what's the trend when it comes to this metaversal stuff is like, it feels like the, the industry wants to move everything onto computers. But I know from experience that if you're opening up these different ways to get people together digitally, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sweat equity and labor. How big is the team that's that's putting this all together? Well, um, Andrew, um, this would be a great, great time to tag him in. Um, Andrew is... Uh, we'll tag in Andrew Barrett. Hi, it's Andrew Barrett. Yes. Yeah, so BRCVR has been building a volunteer team over the past two years. And I think there's about a core group of us. There's about 10 of us. Um, we've been producing Friday night parties pretty much every other Friday night, all through 2021. We're all behind the virtual burn, both 2020 and 2021. And then all of these mini burns that we do, which are sort of tests for us to push the boundaries. We've also brought in a couple of other people to help us on the technology side of things, both creatively, because Doug's been envisioning these worlds to be quite extraordinary. And then of course, the audio visual crossing between different platforms. Um, there are some experts who have who are helping us do that, so it goes pretty smooth. I hope that helps. It, it does. It does. I, I also think like people, and the reason why I wanted to touch on that, aside from there's there's another point to get to in a second, is that so much of the dialogue around working virtual events just makes it all seem like it's going to be automagical and people just tossing things up and not recognizing that it takes it takes a you know, the old canard, it takes a village to, to get one of these things together. Well, we very much believe that the human side of the digital world is incredibly important, especially when you consider that for a lot of people, this is their first foray into virtual reality. And when you land in a world, if you're greeted by a bot and there's no human connection, there's no real desire to come back. But when that's one of the things that we thrive on and one of our biggest successes is that we make sure that your first uh, interaction when you come into one of our virtual worlds is you have another human being across from you welcoming you, greeting you, making sure you understand the functionality of the platform, and then giving you whatever other information you need for that specific event. Uh, we have a team of greeters that are there to connect with you. We also have a team of moderators. They go around the world and they just make sure everyone is treating each other respectfully and uh, enjoying the experience uh, as best they can. And these two teams are integral to the Big Rock Creative team. We don't do any events without greeters and moderators. They are the glue that hold the moment by moment experience of our events together. The film festival is what's coming up first on the calendar here at uh, top of February. I know there was there was a, a call out recently uh, that you all made uh, to start putting together kind of a, a expanding your Rolodex for events. Um, 
what are you other than of course i'm sure another virtual burn this year what's on, what's on the menu ahead are is there anything that you guys are can kind of reveal or, or what kind of people you're still looking for to bring into orbit well we are partnering with other companies with lots of other companies actually but one that we're really excited about is partnering with dreamland xr and they have an event that they're doing with the un and unesco to further the act now campaign about global uh, sustainability efforts and we just did an event with them on january 24th uh, that was very successful with people from all over the globe coming to the event that highlighted the Awasal Dome. And we did event support. So Dreamland did the world creation and we did event production with our greeters and our moderators. And it was a really good partnership between the two companies. We're gonna be doing an event with them once a month for the next seven months. So the next one is on February 20th. It'll be in another world and which we're very excited and we we can't reveal what it is um, but the world from january 24th will also be open so people that missed the al-wasl dome that actually exists in dubai will be able to come in and see that and the new world and it'll be additive so every month you'll get to come back and connect with the brc team and see all the phenomenal programming that happens with that. We have other events coming up, but at this time, because of NDAs, until they actually launch, we can't tell you about them. But because the UNESCO world launched on January 24th, we can uh, tell you about all the future ones that are coming. And are these going to be, these these events, they're going to be public events for the most part? I mean, or are there going to be some that are just private? Or are you guys kind of forward public-facing at the moment with a lot of the work you're doing? We do private events, too. We have right. brands and companies that come to us that are just like, you know, can you build our office building so that our workers can come and work in it? Or can you build this really cool branded world that uh, we can use to show prospective clients? And um, so we do that as well. And so we have a nice roster of private worlds, uh, but we love the public worlds. We love being able to share this with anyone around the globe uh, who wants to come and play. And we are platform agnostic. So yes, we keep talking about Altspace because most of our content is on Altspace, but we have people we're talking to right now on other platforms that would very much like us to build content for them. Well, this is all fantastic. I encourage everyone who's listening to check out the film festival that's coming up this first weekend in February and to keep an eye on the UNESCO World Series. Uh, Doug, mm-hmm. Andrew, Athena, thank you all so much. If people want to find out more about what you're up to, where's the best place to find you? Hey, it's Andrew. They can go uh, on Facebook. We have our BRCVR group there. Um, we also have our website, brcvr.org. And all of this is made possible because of our generous supporters through our Patreon, which you can go to Patreon and BRCVR and find us there. All right. We'll keep... Oh, Doug? No, I was just saying I love it. It's great. Thank you for supporting I was just going to say, if you're a, a brand or a company or an organization and you'd like us to help you bring your community into the metaverse and connect everybody globally, then reach out to us at bigrockxr.com. Fantastic. And 
I'll just say like no one throws a better event in the metaverse than you guys right now. So uh, if we can say metaverse, Aww. so so there you go. Well, All right. Friday, Thank you. You know. <laughs> On that note, uh, keep an eye. And when when are these events? Uh, we definitely uh, the team's been listening at everything immersive as well. So uh, you can always find hopefully we'll always be able to find them there, and uh, we'll, we'll keep a close eye, and we'll have you back soon enough. Joining us now is Steve Jamison, the co-creator of On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World, uh, which he did along with Mike Brett. Uh, names you may recognize from Notes on Blindness, which is one of the seminal pieces of uh, VR narrative. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Hey Noah, thank you so much for having us. I'm uh, looking forward to discussing the project with you and hearing your thoughts on it. For those who haven't seen the piece yet, uh, could you just just set up the story here, the the light version of that? Well, <laughs> I know, a, right? Yeah, is there a light version of a, of an immersive experience about uh, a, a theme as vast as nuclear threat? I think, look, the you know the potted story would be that um, we were approached in uh, early 2018 to make a project by Princeton University's Department for um, Science and Global Security. And, and the origins of the project actually had nothing to do with um, the very specific story that we, um, that, you know, we ended up putting at the center of it. But the, the question from them was, how do we engage a young audience um, in the issue of nuclear threat when it feels like a, a, you know, an, an issue that um, you know, belonged to the 80s and is no, you know, not necessarily as relevant anymore? Um, and so how do we, how do we Bring this back into public consciousness and they approached us with that question and how could we do that through an immersive experience and it was actually in our i guess in our development of that story where we were we knew that it had to be an emotional hook we know that we knew that we had to go in through human stories and human responses to nuclear weapons we couldn't go in with stats and and you know details about weapons or political structures and um, we had to go in with you know, real relatable human stories. And um, as part of one of, you know, one of the members of Princeton's team was uh, a woman by the name of Tamara Lilianoe Patton, who is both a nuclear specialist, but also a Hawaiian. And she started reading text messages to us about her experience just a month earlier when everybody in Hawaii had woken up at seven minutes past eight on a Saturday morning to the, a text message from the emergency management agency that they have on the island, which said, ballistic missile inbound to Hawaii, take immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Um, so, you know, for the next three quarters of an hour, 1.4 million people thought that a ballistic missile was headed their way and were forced to contemplate some existential questions that, you know, many of us go through life, you know, never having to face. And so we knew that that Actually, that story could give us an, an, an incredible emotional hook because, um, you know, most of us walk around blissfully unaware of the shadow posed by nuclear weapons. Um, and But for those people, it was very real. And so, we, we, you know, our job then was to meet people who'd lived through that experience and others who could speak to the more macro and global themes of nuclear threat and nuclear security and turn it into an immersive experience, you know, that would... You know, have that emotional hook, but also inform us about, um, you know, the reality of, of nuclear threat in 2021 or 2022 as it is now. Sorry, that wasn't the quick version, but... I think but it was the good version. So, 
that that was i mean you, you knocked out like a couple of, of the questions too so uh yeah. which is which is actually a good thing because uh, well i just want to say like it's fascinating that that was your brief and that then the sort of the, the confluence uh happened that that mm-hmm. that opened the door for this one because as a child of the 80s i remember the 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 fear and the dread of of nuclear war uh being like a constant thing as a child like it was something we were very very aware of and then that all just kind of like washed away in the 90s as if just you know enough mtv could cure anything and seeing the piece i was just brought right back into those feelings and and it felt like someone splashed cold water in my face and just said hey dummy there's still a lot of nukes out there they didn't go away and it is weird that we just kind of go around in this cloud just being like oh oh yeah no i mean they're nuclear weapons but whatever like how 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 many people encounter this piece and are are absolutely shocked that this thing that this event happened just didn't know about it at all uh, yeah it's a really good question and 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 i think one of the things we were really trying to wrestle with at the top is like how do you get people to even engage with a subject that it's it's not easy for our for us to wrestle with the um the idea of nuclear armageddon it's not an easy thing to think about and and it's really incredibly abstract um so i think there's a combination of people either not being aware or not really wanting to engage with it because it's, it's overwhelming. I, I felt overwhelmed yeah. by the subject when I got into it and, and, and also felt like I had very little agency in changing the conversation or changing the direction of travel. Um, but I think people would be shocked to know how many nuclear weapons there are in the world and how many times we've come incredibly close to the end of humanity as a result of... Um, error or um you know or manner of other issues and 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 i think that that's you know it's not just about the moments of high political tension when two um international foes are are facing off and the threat that you know of of a a deliberate missile launch but also the threat of an accidental missile launch or you know an accident somebody accidentally sending a message to 1.4 million hawaiians on as as is the case on, on this day uh, and what the global repercussions of that would be, what other international powers are watching um, that episode and how might they ready their weapons in response, knowing that, you know, the lead times for a, you know, you know, a premier of any given country to, you know, get their missiles launched is, you know, as little as five minutes. So, you know, there there is very little time for rational thought in those moments. And it's actually extraordinary that we haven't, you know, had more episodes or more severe episodes like this. And so, that was one of the things that we kind of wanted to bring back into consciousness and also, you know, as I said before, bring it to a, a young audience. Um, because as you said, you know, this felt like in the eighties, it was incredibly relevant and then somehow went away. But the truth is it hasn't gone away and it's, and, and it's more pressing an issue than it's ever been at any moment in history, really. Yeah. More, more people have nukes. <laughs> um, that, that's, that's the big thing that's changed. It's actually probably gotten more dangerous. Well, um, you know, there are, there are, more nuclear armed states, there are more weapons, there are more weapons that we don't know where they are, there are more launch sites, the weapons themselves have, you know, a more sophisticated and more powerful. Um, yeah, and as I said before, the, then, but then all of the processes that we have to control them are totally fallible, um, as, as proven by this, um, 
event in Hawaii where somebody accidentally sent a text message that could have led to real disaster. Now, I've got, I want to center on the piece itself for a minute. Mm-hmm. And two of my big questions are, one, uh, about the scope. You did the, the piece, which is what's out right now is chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, follows a number of different characters, uh, people who were, were there. Yeah. Um, and it begins with uh, someone of, of Native Hawaiian uh, ancestry. That's where the story begins and it yeah. ends with, with them. Um, I, I, I'm wondering about the choice to do that kind of ensemble uh, storytelling here. And uh, was was that something that, well, yeah, what, what was, there's, there's many reasons why to go with that that kind of choice. And I'm just curious what yours were. Well, you know, that's a, um, it's a, it's a great question. Um, how, how, you know, how to, um, approach the story. First, I just want to talk about, um, Jamaica, who's our co-writer and co-creator on the project. Um, Jamaica, Hioli Melikalani Osorio is a native Hawaiian poet, um, scholar, academic, um, activist, and, you know, one of the most articulate people I think I've ever met. And we actually met her when we were collecting testimonies, you know, and we were trying to collect lots of different testimonies of, you know, what people did in those 38 minutes when when, when this um, text message was sent. And we were really blown away by Jamaica's ability to encapsulate some really, really huge themes. And, and the truth is... Um, Western powers and especially American militarism have taken the issue of the nuclear issue to the indigenous community of Hawaii. And, mm. you know, there have gen- been generations of um, militarism and nuclearism have had an awful, like a truly extraordinarily awful effect on, you know, the, the people of the Pacific, the, the communities um, of um, Polynesia from testing all the way through the uh, 70s and 80s and you know now the military presence in Hawaii so we interviewed Jamaica about her experience that day and she was managed to encapsulate these things but um, she's also an extraordinary poet and so some of these things which are um, can be quite difficult to unpack we asked her if she'd be willing to um, try and compose a poem that would sit at the heart of the piece that would that would bring all of that into a much more lyrical um palette for us and she has done an amazing job and so Jamaica's poem um, not only forms the spine of of the piece and so each of the chapters and it's going to be a three chapter experience so there are two more to come each chapter will start with a, a, a sequence of poetry from Jamaica and then the themes of that chapter will flow out of that part of the poem but also she gave you know it gave name to the, the to the project itself mm. um um, and and to your second question, just about the the range, I think it was about the range of people's responses. You know how people, you know, are forced to have different questions, you know, different face different questions on the day, and and you know behaved in different ways, and that tells you a lot a lot about them. I think we're, you know, we were just conscious that we want. This is a real, as I said before, this is a really difficult um, issue to relate to, and therefore. We went for this ensemble cast approach and, and it continues to grow and evolve throughout the three chapters because we want people around the world, not just in Hawaii, but and not just in a, the US either or not just in, um, you know, Western nations or nations that, that you know, that possess um, nuclear weapons. We want everybody around the world 
to relate to these stories and to find somebody in there that they can, you know, whose story or predicament that they can relate to, whether that's, you know, what do I do with my kids to keep them safe? Um, you know, how do I get to my loved ones? How do I protect, you know, the people closest to me? Um, we wanted to give somebody, you know, everybody something to, to relate to because, you know, from the top, we knew that this isn't, um, it's not a political issue. Nu- you know, nuclear threat is not a political issue. It is a human issue and it affects every single one of us, irrespective of who we vote for um, or, you know, which media bubble we belong to or where our affiliations lie or even what nationality we are. And um, so, so that was kind of why we went for that ensemble um, approach that answers the question, partly. The aesthetic you, you deploy here, um, which which has some resonances with the, your previous work, it, this kind of point cloud impressionistic uh, look to the world. Um, I'm wondering. It's it, it, I find it really fascinating because by eschewing naturalism, some of the narrative, some of the humanness of of everything, kind of flows through more readily. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in my experience, because I don't feel like I'm rejecting, you know, the texture mapping or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious how you guys, uh, the, the whole team, views this aesthetic. Um, you know, is it is it a, a practical application? Do you, do you find that there's there's you know you know better uptake of the themes by letting people kind of kind of soft focus into into kind of almost a a dreamlike vision yeah again it's a a great question and i'll you know um you know the first thing is that the actually sorry to to answer your question directly we knew from the top what we wanted the art direction to be like and and it and it was this you know we Mm. you know we explored lots of different avenues to it or lots, lots of different versions to it but always from the same um, theoretical standpoint, I suppose, which is this idea that nuclear weapons or the shadow of them hangs over us, or, you know, every single one of us all the time. And so we wanted to create this kind of netherworld or, you know, upside down or however you want to refer to it, this kind of limbo space is a sort of representation of that, that that kind of dark world of, of nuclear weapons is is here we just can't see it we just can't feel it we're just not present and we don't recognize it but from the moment that first text message drops that's when we see you know all of the environments around our characters start to dissolve and to, and, and degrade as a, as a reminder of this shadow that hangs over us and you know there are other things that we tried to weave in there obviously we were super inspired by um molecular science to a to an atomic science to a certain degree you know knowing that that would you know that's kind of the science that underpins these weapons but also makes up each and every one of us and connects us all um and and the one thing we did really didn't want it to be was um a kind of picture postcard travelogue through um hawaii Mm. and you know with beautiful palms because that is, you know, that's not the reality. And, you know, so that wasn't what we were trying to capture in the piece. So that's why we have this, you know, we start with this kind of more expected view of Hawaii at the start when we're on um, 
we're on, when we're on the beach and then as soon as the text messages start arriving then we, we kind of work to break that down and we did that through lots of different methods actually the truth is we were going to go to Hawaii to do most of that um, practically either through photogrammetry or lidar scanning and scan real locations because we wanted to be really authentic to the place but then of course COVID happened and so all of the production on this has been remote which meant that we had to get our contributors on the ground to, to go and you know take photographs or set, share videos with us of you know each of these environments and then our um, artistic team at um, Novel Lab Studios have done an amazing job of then recreating um, all of those environments in the game engine um, but then as you say rendering it in this point cloud space for me as well it's also this other um, there's this other aspect as well and I'm sure you know this might be something that you can you know other people can relate to but when something really shocking happens in your life like when you are when you're in shock it's almost like you fit that that sense of disconnection with the environment around you you know you can feel the blood coursing in your veins and you, you it's almost a little bit um you know you feel slightly um blinkered and mm -hmm. and and so that was also something that we wanted to to to, to capture with that um art direction of well this as well this sense that from the moment that text message drops, we described it as like losing cabin pressure. You know, you mm. all of a sudden you're in this other space. Um, yeah, so hopefully that answers the question. Oh, it does, it does. Um, and I know you don't have a whole lot of time. There's so many things I'd love to unpack with you, but I'd be amiss if I didn't ask this. Uh, you know, you and Mike are, are two of the creators here. You also, uh, Atlas V, share some of the credit. How does the production work out between you and and Michael and, and the team? Yeah, actually, well, we, um, you know, there are um, five lead creators on the project. There's Mike and myself in, in Jamaica and also Pierre Zandrovich and Arno Colinar from Atlas V. And in terms of how um, all of that um, you know how you we you know those responsibilities shared around. I think I would say that it's you know, um, it's incredibly difficult to put a project like this together, and so it actually does take um, you know lots of brain power and studios and expertise from lots of different places. Mike and I run a studio in London called Archer's Mark, and we traditionally come in from a film background. Obviously, we we co-produced Notes and Blindness um, with with Atlas. Um, but you know our, our expertise is in is in documentary storytelling, and so there's a lot that we don't know, and a very um, have a lot to learn about the immersive space. And of course, Atlas V um, uh, are you know one of the best studios in the world at creating immersive uh, experiences, and so we've learned an extraordinary amount from them, and they've been able to take some of the things that we wanted to do from a narrative perspective and guide us towards the right processes um, to get you know to to execute. Um, and so um, Arno and Pierre have worked tirelessly with us to do that. We've also lent on other creative studios. We have a production studio in uh, Paris called Novelab, who've done a lot of the technical artistry. Um, we used a volumetric capture studio in the UK uh, called Dimension. Um, and then, you know, we've got, a, you know, teams of executive producers who've both helped fund the project, but also are now paving the way of, for the impact campaign of, how do we now take a project like this and, and have the desired impact? How do we affect social change uh, through um, through an experience like this? And that's why we've got a team, Games for Change, on board who are uh, running an, an, a really ambitious impact campaign with us that hopefully get this 
experience into centres of education, you know, in the hands of young people, but also in the hands of policymakers, um, and sort of <clears throat> try and help um, join the and, and create a movement and join the community on the um, eradication of all nuclear weapons. Well, I just want to say that it's an incredibly effective piece and a really stunning work of, of documentary. I I loved, you know, that your approach was to get to the to the human to open up what can be these very abstract ideas. And um it it it, it always fascinates me when people think that they can just throw a wall of stats at you and, and just feel like the that the problems are self evident because that's just not the way people process things. But I, I came out of this one and was on the one hand, like completely grounded in the the old feels from the eighties of, Oh my God, the nukes, you forgot about the nukes. And also kind of with a sense of that, this is the right way to approach these stories that involve all of us that are, that are, that are bigger. I was even thinking about climate change and like how we get people to understand that. And there's, there's something about the way you're telling the story here. There's something about the way it all clicks together that just feels like, um, a, a, it's weird to say this, a sensible way of approaching um, this this type of uh, call to action. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for your note. Actually, it was, it was in, you know, fascinating creating a project like this during a pandemic, which of course was, you know, another yeah. vast um, global event, which was not just possible, but probable. And the warning signs were there for years and, and, um, you know, in one of our latest chapters, Daniel Ellsberg, who was um, obviously the, um, you know, uh, um, famous actor, whistleblower, yeah, like most famous whistleblower of all time. You know, Daniel Ellsberg says we're fate. We know we are failing to prepare for this nuclear event in the way that we failed to prepare for the reality of a pandemic. You know, oh, God. he describes them as low probability, high impact events, um, which is different from. Uh, climate change, I suppose, in a way, because that's not just high probability, it's an inevitability. But it's these things that are so vast and that are, we find it hard to engage our, our, our minds with them or how to wrestle with them. And, and so for us, that's always been a, you know, humans have always been at the, the center of how we fix that. Steve, I'm so glad it's uh, it's, it's still running at Sundance. I think uh, when this drops is the, the last day of the Sundance run. And I'm sure uh, this chapter is going to release out into the world, uh, hopefully not too, at some point in the not too distant future, or is it going to run the festival circuit for a minute? Uh, it will be out uh, sometime before the summer, um, but we've got, you know, other chapters and we'll go on the festival circuit um, first. And then, yeah, we look forward to people seeing the whole experience uh, on Oculus before the summer. Fantastic. We're also Steve. building, I should, sorry, I should say we're also building a, um, trying to build a, um, you know, a place where people can go to to find resources if they feel strongly about the nuclear issue after watching the experience. And that will be on our website on themorningyouwake.com. Um, and that's something where we're really trying to push people towards to see how they can join the community. And all of our impact materials are on there as well. But thank Fantastic. you for your support, now. Thank you, Steve. Steve Jamison, thank you so much. <laughs> Once 
Once again, I want to thank Erfan and Doug and Athena and Andrew and Steve for all being on the show this week. A lot of incredible work going on out there right now. Don't forget, the audience awards are open for balloting at the moment, so follow the links to check out what the nominees are. At the very least, go go see who the nominees were. Uh, it's a really great group of, uh, of creators and a really amazing uh, crop of work over the past year. Uh, just a couple other quick notes before we head off into the sunset for the weekend. Uh, no new Patreon backers uh, to announce this week, uh, which is, of course, disappointment. We're just 15 away from our next milestone, and uh, we need a lot more to make this uh, endeavor sustainable. Um, you know, uh, our plans have not uh, our plans have been impacted greatly by uh, the latest COVID surges. And uh, we need the Patreon support more than ever to make it through the next few months. So if uh, this is valuable to you at all, uh, if uh, the things, other things we do matter to you, two bucks a month makes a big difference. We're going to do a big push in February uh, to just try and see if we can, we can survive. So patreon.com slash no uh, It means a lot. Uh, I, my least favorite part of the show <laughs> doing that part, but it's true. We need the help. Uh, the people who give help, every month uh, and uh, who, who keep us going and alive. They are our sustaining backers over on Patreon. They are Ari Hurston, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, David Basick, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all. Um, we'd, uh, if I lost a few of you, we'd have to close up shop. So uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. Oh boy. Did I just doom myself? Mm, maybe I did. You can tell, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm in, I'm, I'm me anyway. So the associate producer for no percentage is Parker Sella music for no percentage is by Chris Porter of the speakeasy society. Special thanks to Siobhan Lachlan for voicing our intro. Catherine, Yu does our headlines as the executive editor of no pro this podcast. Uh, all the mistakes are mine. Anything that's good is something the guests said until next time. Thank you for wearing the mask. 